College Dublin Talks podcast. I'm Tom Malloy, and with me today is Dr. Sarah Jane Cullinan. She's the assistant professor, uh, an assistant professor, I should say, in the Trinity Business School, and an expert in mindfulness, organisational behaviour, and well-being at work. So an incredibly um, interesting topic, incredibly kind of a topic of the moment. Um, Sarah Jane, welcome. First of all, thanks, Tom. Can you can you explain to us what is mindfulness? I think there's a lot of confusion out there. Some people think it's meditation or yoga, or, but how, how would you describe mindfulness for us? Okay, so to me mindfulness is about, and, and what I say to students or, or businesses that I'm working with, it's about paying attention on purpose, which that's important, to things as they are, so not how we'd like them to be or how they've been in the past, um, to things as they are with a non-judgmental attitude. And I think the people understand it as that piece of paying attention, but the non-judgmental attitude is just as important in mindfulness as the paying attention on purpose in the present moment. So um, that, that can kind of get lost, that piece of the definition, and that's actually just as important as paying attention. So I think that's how the confusion it, comes. How has it become so big? I think it's fair to say that I'm sure, you know, as, a, as an academic researcher, you've been conscious of this term for quite some time, but I think for most of us, it's only in about the last three or four years that mindfulness is suddenly everywhere. What, what, what was the kind of the academic trajectory? How did it become mainstream? Oh yeah, it's an interesting story. So in the um, 1980s, um, a man called John Kabat-Zinn, who is a molecular biologist in the University of Massachusetts, was treating um, patients who were suffering with chronic pain over there. So they were treating them, and these patients had kind of come to a stage where they were beyond help, so they had whatever medication they could get and whatever treatment they could get but they were at a stage where they had to learn how to live the rest of their lives with this pain um, and John was a um, also a practicing Buddhist and and um, a yoga practitioner and he wanted to, to try and come up with a secular training program for people who had this constant suffering um, based on the the teachings of Buddhism um, so he spent about 10 years writing what's called, um, the book is called uh, Full Catastrophe Living and it's kind of the, the, the mainstream eight week program that's now become known as Mindfulness in the West. So that, that was in around the 80s and nobody really knew about it outside of that, that place um, and more and more people started doing the programs and then word got to the UK and um, clinical psychologists who were treating people with depression in universities in the UK, um, Oxford in particular, and these um, these academics wanted to try and come up with a program for people who were suffering with depression, um, but a program that would stop the rep uh, depression reoccurring. So people who were suffering with depression, but who were then feeling well, could do this training program to prevent relapse into depression. Um, and one of them was also a Buddhist. And so they visited the University of Massachusetts um, and then tried out developing this program for people um, with depression and it became mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Um, and that's when the research started. So that was in the 1990s. And then because you had some of the, the top universities working on this, um, that's when the research started because they had to find out whether this actually had an impact on depression and, um, and also anxiety. So um, that was the early 90s and then it kind of took off from there and it, then it started spreading in the last 10 years into the workplace. Now it's huge in education as well. There's 
um, programs for primary education, secondary education, and a bit, it's a bit in third level, but not as much as in primary and secondary. Um, it's in the workplace, as we know, it's getting very popular there, um, criminal justice system, um, and it's, it, yeah, it's really spreading in terms of its popularity, so. Well, can I ask you a personal question, because I'm still struggling a little bit with mm -hmm. the, <coughs> the kind of the abstraction of it all. This is your specialism, you, you, you research it, you have a company that, 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 that introduces it to businesses, but how do you practice in your own life? Mm. Give me an example of you know, what mindfulness means to you. Okay. Please. Yeah, absolutely. So th there's a couple of ways that I practice and people can practice. So there's formal practice and informal practice. The formal practice is when you sit down for a set period of time, maybe with a guided meditation on or a timer, um, and you sit in your chair or your, on your cushion or bench, or you might do um, a guided movement or something like that. So for me, um, every day I try to do maybe a formal sitting practice. But there are many days when that's not possible. So I also have, they're like my tricks up my sleeve. So let's say before you guys came, I could see myself kind of getting into thinking, oh, what's he going to ask me? So I did what's called a three minute breathing space. It's where you just sit down and you just check the weather pattern of what's going on. I'm noticing that I'm anticipating, I'm thinking a lot about what might come. So I'm just gonna ground myself um, into the chair, the physical sensations in my body. And I, I would do that a lot when I'm teaching and um, when I'm about to do a presentation or just anything that gets the, the heart rate going. Um, and then I also it also comes into daily practices in everything we do as well, like um, eating, walking, talking to people, so that we're kind of over time cultivating a present moment awareness of being with the activity that we're doing while we're doing it because our brain has evolved to be in many different places from where we actually are and what we're doing um, and that really reduces the level of enjoyment of our daily activities as well so you might be like today now it's a beautiful day I was walking through campus there and um, you just couldn't be anywhere more beautiful and the the cherry blossoms are out but sometimes when you're rushing so much in your life you're walking past these beautiful things and you don't see them you don't smell them you don't hear things um, and it's about just integrating that into our, our daily activities as well so when things are a lot of kind of old-fashioned expressions like smelling the roses yeah or you know when you say eating it's kind of interesting isn't it in a way uh, prayer before a meal is, is a form of mindfulness mm -hmm. is it um, Okay, so that's that's how you would integrate it into into your private life. Um, what about what about companies and, and businesses, which is which is I suppose your specialism? How how would somebody uh, why would somebody introduce it into a business? Why does it matter to somebody whether their employees are uh, grounded and enjoying the moment mm. and you know all of those good things, but but. Does it maybe take the edge off some employees? I mean, obviously, in many work environments, uh, it would appear that people like a kind of uh, frantic mm. atmosphere. So, you know, is there a danger that that um, employees might lose their edge if they're forever turning inwards? Mm. There is kind of two perspectives. So there's the the value of people doing it as individuals within the workplace, and then there's the perspective of the employer who's deciding whether we should get someone in to, to help the employees and do a class or something like that. Um, the debate about whether it takes the edge off I think is, is a really interesting one um, because even recently actually there was articles um, saying that is mindfulness demotivating in the workplace as well 
um, and there's a fear and I had this fear myself actually when I started this um, because you really are going against what you've been doing all your life in terms of striving to get ahead and, and trying to be ambitious and further yourself um, and there is this fear that when you stop and practice allowing things to be just as they are and and try to practice non-striving which is actually a big part of mindfulness is non-striving and people think that non-striving is the opposite of ambitious but it's actually not it's just about noticing how things are and allowing what's here to be here so that we can make a much more informed decision of what to do next and to respond to the situation so for me in terms of the workplace the best value and it's needed so much more these days now because of the, the changing nature of, of work and the uncertainty of the future of work as well is that we really need to be able to respond to situations not to react to them and to people um, and by practicing mindfulness we allow ourselves that extra bit of space um, it's not like you, you you wait five minutes to answer somebody if they come at you but you just have that moment where you're not it's not a knee-jerk reaction you can have your own pause even if it's just a millisecond to just right notice even if what's happening in that situation is is causing a reaction in you whether that be fear or anger or frustration and you recognize that and allow it to be before you decide how to to respond to the person or the situation and then the decisions that you make then are going to be a lot better than if you just reacted in a knee-jerk way so it, it, it's very useful in providing that space the other advantage for employers is that um, burnout stress anxiety in the workplace is, is increasing massively we've great data to show that um, and there's a real uncertainty about how to deal with that and there is very strong evidence to show that mindfulness when practiced over time does lead to, to greater well-being so it is in the interests of our um, for employers to to encourage people to practice well, but you it make is a compelling you make a compelling argument uh, but do, <laughs> uh, do employers actually do it I mean are there many employers here in Ireland or elsewhere in Europe or further afield that that are mindfully promoting mindfulness among their employees the, yeah there's there's different approaches I think a lot of a lot of companies are are doing it when you have a leader what typically happens is when you have a leader who really believes in it and practices it themselves in their own life um, then they are very passionate about bringing it into the culture of the organization as well where you might even have mindful moments at the start of meetings um, so the leader might say to to his executive team yeah we're now going to pause close our eyes what what give me the words what might he say or she, oh, it's a, you wouldn't even like have it as a guided meditation it might be just a moment a, 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 a moment silence. of silence yeah. beforehand and it's up to people what they want to do with it right. if they want to sit and meditate fine if they want to sit but it's just to have time during the day where there's nothing there's nothing coming at you nothing new you're just digesting what's already there before you start your meeting where you're making important decisions and let's say I work in uh, an environment where I don't have such an enlightened leader. What, what, what things could I typically do myself to, to kind of improve mindfulness and, and, and to, I suppose, touch base with who I am? As an individual, yeah. as an employee? Yeah. Well, there's lots of ways you could do it. So um, when I'm introducing it to, to businesses and to, to students, there's loads of ways you can start. So you can start by taking a course so the kind of 
the, the most evidence-based approach to it is the eight-week um, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction program, which is the one that came from the University of Massachusetts in the 80s and has since been refined over the years, but it's still kept that structure of an eight-week program, which is two and a half hours a week for eight weeks. Um, and the evidence shows us that, that it takes that period of time with those weekly classes and daily practice, practice for about 40 minutes at home every day when you're doing that course, um, for significant change to take place and if for it to become a real habit in your daily life. Um, and I've done that course a good few times and I've, that's what I train to teach as well. Um, and it really does make a huge difference. And there are much shorter versions of it um, and shorter versions have been developed for the workplace and I'm talking to people about that as well because two and a half hours a week plus daily practice just sends people, who, especially people mm -hmm. who are really, really busy which is basically everybody now. <laughs> I have never met a person who says they're not busy. So um, there is lots of kind of shorter versions, but they just wouldn't have a strong and evidence base. But there's lots of other ways. So, so if you don't have the time to do a course, there are great apps out there as well that people can do and they, they is build there it up. an app in particular that you would highlight? Or Two that I've heard recommend? of um, recently. One, um, a student actually told me recently about an app called Cam, which is supposed to be very good, yearly subscription, and it builds it up over time. And Headspace is the other most popular mm. one again, yeah. where there's a free subscription or you can pay and it builds up over time. So you just start with a few minutes a day and build it up a little bit to like 10 minutes a day. But are you kind of in favour of that? I see your nose wrinkling slightly. I, mean, <laughs> I, I get the feeling you you think the best approach for people who are interested in going down this road is to do the, the two and a half hours a week and the 40 minutes every day is it to kind of immerse themselves and make a commitment or, or am I wrong no no you're not wrong at all that is what I believe I, I think if it's a difference between you doing it or not you're better yeah. off doing the <coughs> shorter version mm. um, but I think if you really really want to make to, to make this a part of your life there's nothing like doing that because the difference between a 10-minute practice and a 40-minute practice is that in 10 minutes, you'll probably be able to tune into most of the guidance and you'll sit there or lie there or whatever the practice is, um, and then you'll move on with your day. Whereas if you do the, the eight-week program and the daily practice, um, you get to experience what it's like to sit and be really uncomfortable <laughs> um, and to notice what it's like to be really uncomfortable without just trying to distract yourself and move on to the next thing or grab something to eat or have a drink or look at social media or whatever it is that you do when you, you want to distract yourself from the discomfort in your life. So it's something very different to sit with that discomfort. Um, and that's why I think a lot of people give it up very quickly because they do it and they say this isn't for me because oh my mind is racing, my mind is racing. And then actually when you're in a class over an eight week period, you're with a group of people where you come back together every week and people say, I couldn't do that, that was really hard. My mind was all over the place, I couldn't sit still, I couldn't lie still. And you realize that everybody had that experience. So that's normal and that's the way it's supposed to be, that's, that's what our minds do. Um, and it's hugely beneficial for us to, to notice that discomfort. So I know it sounds strange that you're telling people to do this because it'll make you uncomfortable, but being uncomfortable um, and noticing that and actually sitting with it for a while can be massively beneficial for the rest of our lives. Um, it kind of sounds like a bit of a, a contradiction, well, not, doesn't not, it? No, it seems to make sense. I mean, you're, you're bringing mm. it really back to the kind of Buddhist origins here, yeah. aren't you? And, and clearly this has been something that people have been worrying about for many thousands mm. of years, even long before iPhones and the like were yeah. invented. People exactly. in the Far East were, were worrying about distraction and, yeah. and how to think clearly and so on. And this is 
yeah, 20th century, 21st century attempt to, to answer that age-old yeah. question. Sarah-Jane Callanan, thank you very much indeed thank for, you, for talking to us today. Thank you, John.